Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. I am really, really, really excited about my guest today. His, I've just read his amazing book. And if you don't know who he is, Christopher M. Bash. Professor Christopher M. Bash set out to explore his mind and the mind of the universe on what will become a life-changing journey with the help of the psychedelic drug LSD. Chris's 73 high-dose LSD sessions over the course of 20 years drew him into a deeper communion with cosmic consciousness. Pushing the boundaries of theory and practice, Chris's psychedelic experiences took him beyond self-transformation into collective transformation, beyond the present into the future, revealing spirit and matter in perfect balance. Christopher M. Bash, PhD, is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngtown State University, where he taught for 33 years. He is also the adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies, Emeritus, I hope I said that properly, fellow at the Institute of Noic Sciences and the Advisory Council of Groff Legacy Training. Chris's passion has been the study of philosophical implications of non-ordinary states of consciousness, especially psychedelic states. An award-winning teacher and international speaker, Chris has written four books, Life Cycles, A Study of Reincarnation in Light of Contemporary Consciousness Research, Dark Night, Early Dawn, a pioneering work in psychedelic philosophy and collective consciousness, the living classroom and exploration of collective fields of consciousness in teaching and LSD and the mind of the universe, the story of his, of his 20 year journey with LSD. This is his story and this is his passion. Professor Christopher M. Bash, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Louisa. It's nice to be with you. It's so nice to be with you. I've just read your book. It's fabulous. I'd like to dive right in. For those that haven't read it, and the link, all the links will be in the show notes, what is the book about? And what story are you telling? That's two questions, I'm sorry. but <laughs> Well, I was trained as a philosopher of religion. And right as I was beginning my career at Youngstown State University, I met the work of Stanislav Grof, the foremost authority of integrating psychedelics into psychotherapy. I read his book, Realms of the Human Unconscious, which had just been published. This is a long time ago, in 1978. And I saw that this work was extraordinarily important. I mean, we're undergoing a renaissance of psychedelic research now, but Stan's work comes from the early generation. He was in the, the earliest tier of this research. So I, I read his work. I saw what, how important this was, not just to psychology, but to philosophy. And so I, I just had to find out for myself what using psychedelics, what using LSD in a very careful and specific way, in a very controlled circumstances, using a therapeutic protocol, you know, pioneered by the early researchers, Stan particularly, uh, what it could teach me about myself, about my mind, and ultimately the mind of the universe. So I began a 20-year, what became a 20-year journey. I chose 
perhaps foolishly, to choose a regimen working with very high doses of LSD in these control circumstances. I did 73 high-dose sessions systematically over 20 years, recording the results. And um, after I had finished in 79, I did this work when I was 30 to 50. After I finished the work, I, I took another 20 years to think about and digest and process these experiences, eventually 20 years later in 1999, publishing LSD in the Mind of the Universe, which is this the complete story from beginning to end of where this journey took me into the universe. I said before the interview, I'm almost jealous in a way what you experienced, but you did experience such deep emotional and physical suffering, but such deep, profound insight of universal truths. Do you mind just explaining to the audience, and you do detail this in your book, what a session looks like? A session, my sessions always began in the early morning. You're all, I was always isolated. I was either in my home or in my wife's office. I was I always had a sitter who carefully took care of me and monitored me. Um, my wife, my sitter was my first wife, Carol, who was a clinical psychologist. Uh, I'm always lying down on a mattress on the floor, surrounded by pillows. I'm listening. I have my eyes covered with eye shades. I'm listening with earphones to very carefully selected music to pace the unfolding of the session. Totally protected from outside outside interferences. Uh, internally focused, focused deeply within, and they last all day. They last basically from early morning, uh, about eight hours into the late afternoon or early evening. And I asked you before, the, the physical toll on the body, how, how, what was that like? Aside from the, the emotional aspects and the spiritual, the, the, the physical. Yeah. Well, physically, I mean, I'm fine. It, it, it's actually a very beneficial process because in this work, when the body begins, I mean, basically LSD is an amplifier of consciousness. It hyper-stimulates, hyper-amplifies consciousness. Our conventional, commonplace understanding of psychedelics is, is quite wrong. Uh, we're coming into a new era of psychedelic research. The public is being educated to a deeper understanding of what these substances do. But they basically hyper-amplify consciousness. And if you use this amplified state carefully and conscientiously, your body begins a detoxification process. It begins to pull out of your system all the things you'd rather not face, all the things you're scared of, all the things you're afraid of, all the things that basically, your shadow, classically. You begin, these things begin to come up at you, and if you confront them clearly and conscientiously, you basically can begin to lift these things out of your system. You go through, eventually, a death and rebirth process. Your, your, your total identity that you had developed over your lifetime on Earth ultimately is shattered and you are spun into deeper transpersonal or spiritual states of consciousness. If you continue this work, this cycle of purification continues and the, the, the difficult material that you have to process comes from beyond the personal psyche. It comes from deeper levels of consciousness, the collective levels of consciousness, the species mind, archetypal levels of consciousness. And I know this is a radical story. I mean, I really do. I understand how far beyond most people's experience this is. And I, I understand how off the wall it is just oh, jumping I think into it. Oh, I think so it's far. incredible. <laughs> 
But but basically, you go through deep, deep, deep purification processes, which are well known in the spiritual mystical traditions. You're clearing a lot of material, not only from your own body-mind history, but also from the history of your species and so on and so forth. And it involves a lot of physical detoxification as well, a lot of purification of your body. The net result, uh, even though you go through some very difficult you know, purification, suffering, multiple deaths and rebirths, the cumulative effect is very clarifying on your body and on your emotions. It's very uplifting. Uh, because when you go through these intense purifications, you are spun into very, very deep, positive, ecstatic states of consciousness, which deepen as the process progresses. So my body's in good shape. Uh, I, I think my emotions are in good shape. It's been an adventuresome and uh, adventuresome journey. I just wouldn't have missed it for the world. It's incredible. And you, you, what, what's interesting, you talk about the, the, the death and the rebirth. You also talk about the death and the rebirth of the ego or the removal of the ego. Mm -hmm. And even more interesting, during this process, you had to surrender. But in this process of growth and evolution, you also um, affected the collective consciousness, which is a very interesting um, way of thinking about it. Yeah, and surprising to me. I wasn't expecting this at all. I was thinking when I got into this work that this was about personal healing mm. or personal transformation, personal enlightenment. But what I found after going through two years of this work and going into the second two years of the work, I started processing enormous, vast tracks of pain. I started being drawn into fields of suffering that really were like Dante's Inferno, just thousands and thousands of beings and thousands of years of human suffering were just passing through me, flowing through me. And at first I thought this was a deeper form of ego death. But this kept on for so many years and it was so collective that I eventually was forced to consider an alternative understanding which has become my normative understanding and that is that in these very very intense states of consciousness something in the universe uses these states of consciousness to heal the scars certain scars that are collected in the human collective unconscious which history has deposited into the human collective unconscious so that instead of healing my personal psyche or even former life trauma. I spent years healing various trauma that had gotten lodged into the collective unconscious. And this is what I mean that personal transformation opens into collective transformation. Now, I think that all of us are always hardwired into the collective psyche. And that all of us, when we are undergoing various, you know, our own personal issues, we are simultaneously processing collective issues, that our, that our healing has an impact on the collective psyche. It's just that when you work with psychedelics, this kind of becomes uh, intensified, it becomes paramount. So yeah, I spent two years doing this collective healing, and then I was spun into yet another level of consciousness where the rules of the game changed, uh, changed again. I can't wait to hear about that in a minute, but it's so interesting because we, we always, well, we think of ourselves with our personal transformation and growth and oh. I want to reach this level, but little do we necessarily realize that it's, um, we're working on a collective level. So that would also 
mean that the collective consciousness is affecting us, what the collective consciousness is experiencing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're living in a crazy time in the world right now, but it must, we can't distance ourselves from the impacts of that as much as we would like to try. Yeah, well, you know, we're organically embedded, I think, in the collective psyche, just like we're physically embedded in the eco-ecology of the earth. You can't separate us from the ecology that surrounds us. Psychologically, we are embedded in the collective psyche. My experience basically has spent a lot of time exploring the intimacy with which we are embedded in the psyche and the ways in which each of our individual lives are fractal cells within the larger life of the species, which is part of a fractal cell within the larger life of the universe itself and the solar system and the galaxy. So we are implemented, deeply implemented in our collective process. Eventually, I found that there's no separation between our personal transformation and our collective transformation, that all of us are players on an historical stage, all of our individual issue. I mean, picture any issue that anybody's dealing with, no matter what it is, and it has to be related to something which is going on in the collective. We don't have a private issue that isn't reflected in some type of dynamic in society which is dealing with the same issue. And the way we're, we're kind of like hardwired together. And I know that that's not the usual way of thinking about it. I know that our conventional psychology says we're all completely standalone computers. We're all, you know, simply working on our personal issues. But that's simply not my experience. That's not what shows in these deep states of consciousness. In these deep states of consciousness, it's like we're networked. We, are, we have separate private functions, but we're also networked into vast collective processes so that we're engaging that all the time. Yes, it's a careful balance between being autonomous and all one. Is it your belief that we are, in fact, all one? Um, someone's described it as uh, the creator having multiple personalities, which is the humans. I, I don't, I'm just wondering what's your point of view? I think that core insight that emerges in some of the religious traditions, the spiritual traditions, that Atman is Brahman, the essence of the individual is the essence of the totality. I, in my experience, that's fundamentally true. It's really true. You know, at the core of our person is an energy, a consciousness, an awareness, an awakeness. And the nature of that energy is the nature of the divine itself, that we are sparks of the divine fire. And that all of us, that, you know, oneness is one of the deepest, most consistent and widespread spiritual experiences that emerges in, in mystical traditions. To experience oneness is a totally transforming experience because out of oneness grows compassion. Out of oneness grows a concern for fairness and justice. Also, out of oneness grows the technology, the techniques for deepening our immersion, our communion with oneness. So that we talk about someone being mystically realized or spiritually realized, it, it, it means that they have gone through a process where they become transparent to the fundamental oneness of life and that they live consciously now both as an individual and they are individuals. And simultaneously, they have, a, to varying degrees, a feeling for or receptivity to 
the fundamental oneness of existence itself, the, the pulse of existence as a totality. Yeah. It's really interesting. We, we so often get caught up in our own personal stories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very much so. Are our thoughts our own? Ah, they both are and they're not. I mean, I think it's a very interesting system. Logically, we would think it would have to be an either or. But in fact, I think uh, it's a much more complex process. The thoughts that I'm using right now to speak to you are my own thoughts. I'm kind of reaching into my memories to, to bring them to you. But if, I, if we step back, if, if we were to step back into deeper, more relaxed states of consciousness, if we would step into meditative states of consciousness and deeply quieted states of consciousness and seek to watch where our thoughts come from, we find that there are actually a number of different things that influence what arises from the depth of our awareness. And many of those things that influence what arises are really causes that are outside my personal lineage, causes which are collective, causes which are spiritual, causes which are, are historical, causes which are cosmic. So that what arises into focus in my individual awareness moment to moment has a pedigree. And this pedigree, I think, extends beyond the individual. And if you, I mean, artists experience this, you know, many artists, are creative people when they write a poem or when they create a picture their experience is i didn't do it it flowed through me it came through me so some artists won't even sign their works of art because that would suggest that they created it personally but their experiences is that something larger created through them that blending of a deeper creativity and the personal agency, I think characterizes all of our lives in all circumstances. And it certainly becomes transparent in psychedelic states of consciousness. Gosh, I was just, well, is, is the thought my own, but I was just thinking if we have time, I'd love you to share some of you know, the, the, the pivotal moments that you share in the book. But what's fascinating mm -hmm. is how you talk about you transcend time and space. Um, future, past, present, it's all potentially there happening now. Do you yeah. mind exploring or explaining yeah. that a little bit more? Because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. That was another one of the surprises that I encountered here. Now, we know that physicists talk to us about linear time is not really the only way that time moves, that there are some particles that move backwards in time. And when you enter into the massive compression of black holes, time, you know, the physics of time changes. And in superstring theory, there are dimensions of the universe that are not linear time like space time is. Uh, turns out that when you go into deep, deep, non-ordinary states of consciousness, uh, you, at least I, I'll just speak for myself, mm -hmm. and I think this is echoed in other people's experiences, you experience that fact has, that time has different modalities to it. There are different ways of experiencing time. So early on in my sessions, I, I went through a series of experiences that lasted about a year, seven sessions, where when I came through this profound purification process, every time I did, I was brought into an experience of what I call deep time, not eternity, 
which is non-time, but deep time, where I experienced my entire life from start to finish as a simultaneous now. It was like all the moments of my life were a giant tree, and my most recent experiences before death were the leaves at the outside of the tree, and this, the experiences which had been repeated more and more frequently were the big giant limbs in the center of the tree. But all I experienced myself both with the life yet to come and also simultaneously with my life already having been lived. And I knew myself at that deep level. In later sessions in the years following, I entered into deep time repeatedly, but the, the, the texture kept broadening. I entered into deep time beyond my personal life into the life of the species. I began to have experiences of the evolutionary trajectory of humanity. And again, I, I know this sounds egoic. I know it sounds just absolutely crazy to say, but- No, it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I experienced the trajectory of human evolution, not as a, in the future, not as something which is not yet, and it's in a, the future time, but I experienced it simultaneously <clears throat> as something coming to us, but also as something that had already been completed. So there was a, a wholeness and a breadth and a depth of texture. When you move into very, very deep states of consciousness, for example, when you move into what classically we would call archetypal states of consciousness, deep, into the constitutive principles which are responsible for kind of generating space-time as we know it, those beings or those forces, they live outside of linear time as we know it. You know, So linear time is how things behave inside space-time. But as you move to the edges of space-time, time behaves differently than we experience it inside space and time. If you go into extreme conditions, you may transcend time altogether so that you move into, you move beyond time entirely. You can move into what some people would call eternity or the eternal now or just completely outside space-time reality altogether. Deep time is different than that. Deep time is a certain span of time, whether it's 100 years or 100,000 years, experienced kind of as a simultaneous now or experienced sometimes accelerated. I've been in experiences where centuries were passing by in minutes, you know, just an accelerated experience of the evolution taking place on the planet. And I try to, and this is what I try to unpack this in the book, try to lay it out as carefully and I know systematically you do. <laughs> as I can. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. Is everything happening now? I think perhaps from some perspectives, from a perspective, you could say that everything is happening from now. But personally, that's not a very useful perspective, I find. Mm -hmm. I've tried to think in those terms, and I find that I literally cannot make my mind think coherently within that frame because my mind needs the structure of cause and effect, even if, those, if that varies in certain places, but it needs a certain, some type of variation or permutation of cause and effect for me to understand life as I know it on this planet. Um, 
When I've gone into deep non-ordinary states, time has been variable. But has time completely dissolved altogether? Mm. It's been radically eclipsed at different moments. Uh, but it hasn't led me to be convinced that everything is happening, happening simultaneously now, forever and ever. I think it's a more complex pattern than that. But I don't know. In the end, I really don't know. Well, that was a very honest answer. Thank you so much. You talk about as well that you've, you saw the whole trajectory of your life. Yeah. Uh, my question then is, it's been a question asked since the beginning of, of time, but well, what's time? Is everything pre-planned? No, uh, <clears throat> I don't think it's pre-planned. I think it is uh, their probabilities. I think when we incarnate, for example, I mean, you know, I believe in reincarnation. You know, I've written a book on reincarnation. Yes, I, I assumed you did. Yes, <laughs> it just I think it's an empirical fact that we that we incarnate, that we reincarnate, and eventually you get far enough along in that process that you don't re reincarnate haphazardly or randomly. You reincarnate by choice. You choose your incarnation carefully, and that means choosing the place and circumstances and timing of your incarnation. And you do that from a perspective in which you can see a certain trajectory of what's waiting for you if you choose this life versus if you choose another life. And in that respect, I think there's a certain probability. There's a certain, a certain inevitability of certain things coming together that constitute the challenges and opportunities of your life. But that doesn't mean it's deterministic. It doesn't mean it's a predetermined outcome. Because if it were a predetermined outcome, then why bother? You know, there would be nothing to learn. There has to be a certain open-endedness if we're truly going to be challenged by the, that possibility of variable outcomes in order to learn. Uh, and so I think that, that while there are probabilities and the closer you get to certain events, those probabilities increase. The farther you are away from those events, those probabilities decrease. I think there is time. I think there is chance operating in the universe, but I also think that there is deep the the you know the Eastern traditions call it karma, karma vipaka, cause and effect, cause and effect. But cause and effect does not extinguish choice. It conditions choice. It qualifies choice, but it doesn't eliminate the possibility of of choice. But you have to work for choices to be free. If you don't work, if you don't pay attention, the, or let's put it this way, the less you pay attention, the more likely your choices are going to be highly conditioned. But the more you pay attention, the more you can increase the freedom in your choosing. But to do that, you have to pay a lot of attention. Great answer, and I'm going to re-listen to that. <laughs> um, has your life played out how, how you saw it during your um LSD experiences? It has. Uh, now, I want to be careful. It's not that I experienced that I saw all the details of my life. It's funny how I experienced my life as the, as the sum totality of everything that I was, everything I had become, everything that I then was. 
but there were specific things in my life that I wish I had had a little heads up on, frankly, you know, that I didn't see, I didn't remember all the details, but it, it's, it's a deeper reading than that. It was like a, a, um, a coming to know myself in a way which gave me a deep understanding of what I'm about, what my, the truth of my life is about, and somewhat about why I'm here and what my purpose is. Now, I think every one of us carries that knowledge inside themselves, and it guides us at a very deep level, at an intuitive level. When we come to choice points, if we're careful, we tune into that, and it does guide us. This is, in that respect, this is nothing unusual. It's just a, an unusually intense confrontation with that knowing that we all carry within us. In general, yeah, I, uh, it, my life has unfolded along the lines uh, as I saw it at that time, as I experienced it. I'm not as, I am, I would say, the person that I met, which is now about almost 40 years ago, 35 years ago, the person that I met then is no stranger to the person that I am now. Okay, interesting. But you're a very different person than when you were 40 years ago. I was, I am, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've uh, paid my dues, gone to work every day, raised three children, dealt with all the uncertainties of life that we all have to deal with in that process. I hope I've kept my wits about me. Uh, I hope I've been learning as I've been going. Yeah. I have to ask you the question, you spoke about the evolution of the species and you saw elements yeah. of that in your experiences. Do you mind sharing that with the audience? Oh, this is, that's a big topic. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's, but I, I'm happy to touch on it. But okay. It was, again, one of the big, deep surprises of my journey because I never, ever imagined that something like this would become part of this journey. Again, I was kind of thinking in terms of the conventional descriptions of enlightenment that you find in the spiritual mystical traditions or that kind of thing. But what happened was pretty systematically over years of work, I began to be given a, a series of visionary experiences. And when I say visionary, you know, it's, it's not like they were just visual. The, in these states of consciousness, you learn by becoming what it is you're experiencing. So you become what it is you're experiencing. It You know it from the inside. So when I, when I say I had a systematic initiation into various visual visions of what's happening with humanity, I, it's like I dilated, I entered into absorption with the species mind in a state of deep time. And just consistently, there was a consistent message that was poured into me about where we were. And completely surprised me because I, you know, I didn't give a lot of time thinking about humanity in this global sense. But the message was that humanity is coming into a turning point. We're coming to a decisive time in our history. We're coming to a bifurcation point in our evolutionary development, a time when the past will convert and diverge. Uh, we're coming into a true before and after advance, a change which a time in history that will change us at the very fundamental core 
of our existence and not simply a change in our economy or a change in our politics or our cultural values, but a change in the architecture of the collective psyche so that all human beings born after this period of history will be working within a different archetypal structure of collective psyche. Um, and that this was a time of profound spiritual awakening, a, a, a time of extraordinary uh, change on the face of the planet that would be marking history, would always be marked around this before and after event. This was over and over, it was laid out very consistently, deepening it over time, and there were times when I was given, I was taken deep into the future and given short experiences of what I came to call the future human, the human being that we were becoming in history. But they didn't explain to me how this was going to happen or what form these things would take until uh, several years later when I had a particularly deep experience which took place in 1995. Again, I, I did all this work between 79 and 99. But in 1995, I had an experience that I call the Great Awakening. Very, very difficult experience, but after extensive purification, I was propelled deep into deep time, and I, was, I dissolved into the human species, and I experienced the death of humanity and the rebirth of humanity, not as an individual, but as the species. I experienced that humanity came into a, a, a global systems crisis, a period of profound loss and disruption and turmoil, a loss of control, a, a time of profound destructuring, a time that was so disruptive and so intimidating that for a time it felt like we would all be dead. It was an extinction event. But just when it was at its worst, the pressure lifted, the storm passed, and we survived. Humanity survived, significantly pared down, but we survived. And when we survived, and when we began to pick ourselves up and put our lives back together, we had been changed. We had been changed deep in our core, that in the depths of this global crisis, we had found certain principles, certain values, certain truths, and lived in them. And these, this experience changed us in a never-to-be-reversed fashion. Many ways to describe this process, but at its core, uh, I think it's basically a true encounter with the truth of our oneness, uh, a, a, an outbreaking of oneness in the human species and in human culture, that experience that in which that mystics have talked about, you know, for thousands of years, the experience that we are fundamentally at core, one with each other and one with life. And when you have that experience, then you just can't hurt people. You, you don't allow yourself, you would never allow yourself, your actions to hurt people. And we began to build a culture, to build a civilization out of this experience of oneness and truly an experience of, of humanity, of a, of a world civilization that did not leave anybody out. It was completely inclusive, a world civilization that worked for all. That this was a pivot point 
in our spiritual development and from this and period on and i don't know i was never shown exactly how or exactly when except that it seemed to be a global systems crisis that was triggered by a global ecological crisis now i got to say this was taking place in the 90s and i was not reading the global literature there was i wasn't reading the global ecological literature you know now we're beginning to sort of see you know a exactly what you're talking about coming in but this was 20 years ago 25 years ago um in my last sessions in my in the last couple of sessions i was given one more deep deep the deepest encounter with deep time taken deep into humanity's evolutionary future and was given the experience of the deepest experience i had had of the humanity that we are becoming i think we are entering a time in history of deep deep turmoil but we are not being punished for our sins. We are, we are not being uh, destroyed, though it will feel like it in certain ways, but we're giving birth. And certainly all women know birth is excruciatingly hard work. Gestation is long. Birth is short and intense. We are giving birth and we're giving birth to the next form of humanity, to the next iteration of human life. I think we're giving birth to a, a, a species that is truly an enlightened species. And I mean that in a technical sense, uh, a species, uh, a humanity of Christ, a humanity of Buddhas, a humanities of the prophet, a deeply awakened, spiritually awakened humanity. And that's a before and after turning point. And in this last session, when I was taken deep into the future and allowed to experience this future human, It is so beautiful. It is such a magnificent creature that we are creating in history. I mean, a, just an extraordinarily open heart of pure compassion and an open mind in deep communion with the intelligence of the universe. Just, I think it's really important for us to have a deep vision of what, what we are doing in the long term. Otherwise, we, would be, we might drown in the sorrow that's coming. Labor is hard, but this is, we must look beyond labor to understand that what we are doing is creating, we're bringing into existence a future being, a future human. Wow, well, we, unfortunately, myself included, or as a collective, we always grow from suffering. Unfortunately, we have the, the greatest growth. You also mentioned the pared down human, is that, uh, there'll be less souls incarnated in a physical form that you saw? Well, I draw that not primarily from my experiences, though it resonates with my experience, but I draw that really from looking at the ecological literature today. People who are just plotting the hard numbers, the demographics, what is the carrying capacity of the planet? They talk about the old earth and new earth. You know, the old earth is pre-damage of industrial civilization. New earth is post-damage of industrial civilization, where they estimate that the carrying capacity could be 2 billion people. And we're coming into, you know, 7, 8, 9 billion yeah. people. There's, the push is going to come to shove. And, you know, many, many people who are not, 
who've never taken any psychedelics, you know, are really looking at a time of deep, deep planetary disruption where we won't be able to feed our population given the depth of ecological uh, turbulence and the, the droughts and the, the deforestation and so on and so forth. So, I mean, just intellectually, I think we have ample evidence that we are we are coming into a time of great challenges, and some of those challenges will take lives. The key, the essential question is, how soon will we wake up? How soon will we begin to make important choices to living in harmony with the planet, living in harmony with, the, with each other? The sooner we start making those choices, the more, the, the more we can reduce the damage that will be done we have already locked into place a depth of disruption in this on this planet that's just deeply shaking. We've already locked it in place, but we can still pull ourselves out of this dive or we can just blunder deeper into this dive. I know you didn't necessarily see time frames, but you talk about the sorrow. Was there a trajectory of time for this? this sorrowful period in our species history? I think the 21st century is, is the beginning of what I would call the dark night of our collective soul. Now the dark night is a technical term that scholars of mysticism use, and, and it refers to a, a time of a very, very intense purification that comes and precedes mystical awakening, mystical illumination. The dark night of our collective time is a time of intense purification, a letting go of the past, a, a, a purifying of the past before we can move into a truly new future. And I think that the 21st century is such a time. I, I don't think it's gonna be done quickly. I, I think it'll take several generations. We're talking about a huge change here. I don't know how long it will take but clearly things are accelerating. I mean, there, there's so many things are accelerating technologically, socially, intellectually, the internet, the fact that I'm talking with you tonight across vast space Amazing. and you're gonna broadcast this to people. I mean, this unprecedented, right? Things are speeding up. How fast it takes, how long it takes, partly depends upon how we handle the pressures that are coming, that are already being placed upon us. I mean, we just, the Trump presidency was four years of denial of the reality of climate change. We lost a lot of time during those four years. We, we could have been doing better than we are now. How soon we'll begin to make serious commitments to living in balance with the planet? I, I think we're, we're coming into it. and we, I think we have actually already entered into the early stages of these convulsions. I think COVID-19 is kind of like a, um, a um, uh, what is the term, in a, in a symphony, it's like the overture of a symphony. It's not itself the depth of the disruption that's coming, but it's like the overture that signals some of the themes that are coming. And we all know how deeply disrupted our lives have been with COVID. Well. I think it's going to get much, much worse than what we've experienced with COVID. But perhaps from COVID, we are beginning to learn some of the insights and behaviors that will help us do better 
when the next series of crises come. That takes me just briefly on to fear because I just feel there's so much, in the collective consciousness, there's so much fear. What are your thoughts on fear and how to move through a fear-based state? Well, first we have reasons to be afraid. I mean, you know, we've, we've not doing a very good job with a number of things and there is a tally coming. So from a completely realistic perspective, we have causes to fear. I fear for my children. I fear for my grandchildren. But my deeper, deeper experience is that the wisdom that the universe is profoundly wise. The universe is extraordinarily intelligent and the universe is deeply compassionate. But to experience, to, to really see, to be able to see the, the compassion of the universe you have to look very, very deep because on the surface, the universe looks like a mean son of a bitch. And on the surface, the universe doesn't look very intelligent or profoundly wise. So, you know, you really have to be willing to look deep. Ramakrishna said, if you want to know God, you must be willing to look evil in the face. You must understand that evil is not something outside of the divine, but it is actually part of the the way that the divine manifests itself, not in malice, but that the that, that the divine acts with great power in ways that hurt us at times, and that it, it feels like evil, but it actually it's much deeper than that. My experience in the sessions is that I was many, many times drawn into and dissolved into realities so deep, so large, I didn't have words to describe it. I mean, some people would describe it as the divine. I tend to talk about it as the cosmic mind or the mind of the universe. And I experienced a, a universe extraordinarily wise, extraordinarily intelligent, just massive orders of intelligence beyond anything I had imagined previously. And that's the intelligence that lies behind our moment in history. We are being summoned. We are being called into a higher order of existence. We have to let go of the past. But the, even though the circumstances of this transformation are demanding, they're extraordinarily important and extremely exciting. I mean, look, when we die, we don't want to simply have had a comfortable life. We want to have had a life that means something, that really has challenged us and brought something deep out of us. And I think our time in history is that kind of time. It's not going to be comfortable, but it can be very, very purposeful and very meaningful. And it can be an extraordinary adventure. And that, I think, uh, that engagement of intelligence is much more powerful to me than fear. Fear does not, does not move me very deeply. And like one of the things that fell away from me over the course of this journey is fear of death. I have no fear of death. And I, and I don't say, I say that truly humbly. I mean, it's just, I'm not afraid of it because I've experienced where I'm going when I die. I'm ex I've experienced where people go when they die. And anyone, any shaman or any deep spiritual practitioner has likely had these kinds of experiences. And so I know that I am entering into a greater intelligence. I know I'm entering into a profound love and therefore I have no fear. And if you have no fear of death, 
then it tends to sort of sap the strength of all these other lesser fears that nibble at us around the edges. They don't frighten me. So many people, I, I get asked this question all the time. What happens when we die or I'm so afraid of death? It's very comforting well, from your experiences to say that there is no fear of death. I think there's, we're at a time when we, we have learned so much about what happens when we die. I mean, I, I taught a course called Transpersonal Studies in, in my undergraduate courses, and in it we looked at reincarnation research, you know, just a large burgeoning body of literature that clearly demonstrates that death is not the end of existence, that our consciousness continues. Near-death episode research, hundreds, thousands and thousands of people who have had glimpses of what's waiting for them when they die and extraordinary consistent experiences. We have people uh, like uh, Michael Newton's work, uh, his books Journey of the Journeys of the Soul and The Destiny of Souls, where he regressed people not only into their previous lives, but into their life in between their lives. He actually was able to regress people into conditions where they remembered their afterlife experiences. Mm -hmm. And after taking hundreds of people there, he was able to reconstruct a picture of what happens to us when we die. And what do you know? It's extraordinarily consistent with the Tibetan Book of the Dead and some of the, the great insights that come out of our spiritual traditions. So that we're beginning to piece together, and, and in psychedelic experiences, you know, any shamanic tradition will tell you, you know, you can die before you die. Uh, I mean, the, the saying is, those who die before they die do not die when they die. Uh, it's, you can die before you die physically. You can experience that reality before, I mean, and because the reason we survive the destruction of the body is not because something that happens to us at the moment of death. It's because of something that we already are right here, right now. We already have the spiritual reality alive within us. We already have access to this spiritual reality. And when you tune into that reality deeply, you ex everybody experiences the same fundamental thing. It's impossible to die. The form that you are can die, you know, the outer layers can die, but the inner essence doesn't die and you take all your memory with you, you take all of your learning with you. And we don't have to accept this on faith anymore. We have many, many opportunities for this to be a true, genuine, intellectually persuasive study, field of study. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a large topic, but I have to ask this yeah. question in your experiences, this constant cycle of life and death and rebirth and coming back into the, the physical body. What is the purpose of it all? And is there an end point? Uh, well, big questions, aren't they? I know. I'm so sorry to do this to you. No, no, it's okay. Fair game. <laughs> uh, well, I don't. There isn't an endpoint that we can recognize any more than we can say what the endpoint of the universe is, because billions and billions and billions of years ahead of us, you know, we're just, and reincarnation is the same thing. What reincarnation does is lift from us the burden of too little time. What it tells us that we have an open-ended amount of time in which we will be growing and evolving. 
the classic portrait of reincarnation that emerged about 4,000 years ago is that you reincarnate, reincarnate, you learn, you become more spiritually developed until you awaken to your divine nature. Once you awaken to your divine nature, then you leave. Mm -hmm. then, then you achieve you know, moksha, you escape, and you don't have to be here anymore. But that leaves unanswered the question, what is the purpose of physical existence in the first place? Is it simply to get out of here? And the more we know about how big the universe is and how old it is and how intelligent it is, the more that model of reality just doesn't seem to be very persuasive. In my experience in the sessions, a very different understanding of reincarnation emerged. I had an experience in one particular session, which is crescendo of lots of sessions of work, where I began to have an experience where all of my former lives started coming in. And now, now I, I'm familiar with some of my former lives. I did three years of hypnotherapy work in which I did some of this work. But in this case, all of my former lives started coming in and it was like wrapping filaments of, of light around a kite spool. And eventually when they came together, they fused. And when they fused, there was an explosion of light, of diamond light out of my chest. It just exploded. And it catapulted me into a state of awareness in which I was both an individual, but I was an individual beyond any frame of reference I had ever experienced before. And I think what I was being shown was what the trajectory of where the trajectory of reincarnation is taking us. It's not simply about the small incremental improvements that we make in our lives lifetime by lifetime, though we do. It's not simply about learning more and learning more level by level, though we do. Eventually, sooner or later, the soul, which is the consciousness that integrates all of our life experiences, all of our lives come together and they fuse. And when they fuse, there is created a higher order of human being, what I call the birth of the diamond soul. I think that when the birth, when the, when the diamond soul awakens, a human, inside a human being, in earth, the identity shifts. We no longer take our personal ego, our personal private life as our identity. We now know ourselves to be 100,000 year old beings. We know ourselves to be a soul. We are a soul incarnate. We wake up at that level with our memories intact. This is not the end of creation. It's not the end of the process, but it's a significant turning point. Now imagine if this is happening, if this is built into the fabric of existence, and it's happening not just to us individually, but to all of us together so that eventually the entire species goes through a process where they wake up, the diamond soul wakens inside of themselves, and they know themselves to be soul beings incarnate inside time and space. What a change that would make in the history of this planet. And I think something like that is what we are in the process of doing in the birth of the future human. I think the future human is the diamond soul we are in a process of becoming fully self-aware spiritual beings inside existence. And when we are that, that spiritually awake, truly, we are living heaven on earth. Nirvana is samsara. 
And we don't need to go off planet in order to be in spiritual joy. We can experience spiritual joy right here, right now. That's what I think is happening. Reincarnation is maturing us toward this, through this, but then it keeps going. Another million years, another million years. It's just going to keep going. Wow, very interesting. Our lives are just like a pinprick and that seems so long. It's just a one moment in time, really, each life. And yet so significant. And particularly, I think at this particular time in history, many people have incarnated carrying, in a sense, the karmic imprint of many lives. It's kind of like when you're in college and you get to the end of your senior year, you start loading up your courses to finish your things up quickly. I think a lot of us are loading up our former lives in this life so that we carry a lot of karma that comes from deep history because we have a lot of work that we want to do, we want to accomplish. Uh, so this pinprick is actually a pretty, a pretty rich pinprick in time, in time in history. That's a great way to put it and also removing all the karmic, well, people call it debt or the karma that we've accumulated. I we like are. the idea of that. <laughs> we are. I think we're. I think we're expunging karma exponentially. But remember, we're not simply healing the past. We're not simply making up for things that we did wrong. Most people rise to the karmic challenges of their life. Most people. It's like most of the kids in school. They pass. It's not a perfect system, but they pass. They learn. Most souls, I think, pass the karmic challenges of their life. So in every incarnation, they're not simply making up for things they did wrong, they're building on things that they did right. And so we are, we are growing by leaps and bounds on the basis of things that we have learned and accumulated positively. Sure, we have some cleaning up to do, you know, a little, you know, mm -hmm. but most of what we're doing, I think, is we're learning how to write symphonies. We're learning how to, to love bigger, deeper, longer. We're learning how to think rich, more richly than we have before. We really are building on a very positive legacy in our past. Wow, such profound, incredible insights. Um, I have to ask you the question, why did you stop your LSD sessions? Uh, I stopped... Uh, for two reasons, but the most important reason is I stopped because it became too difficult to come back. At this time, in the last five years of my work, I entered a period of communion with what I call the diamond luminosity. In Buddhism, they call it Dharmakaya, the clear light of absolute reality. I basically was repeatedly dissolved over four years into a, a level of consciousness that was so pure, so sublime, so clear, 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 dissolved into the crystalline body of the divine, drawn into deeper, ever deepening intimacy with the divine fabric of existence. As you can imagine, this was absolutely deeply soul-satisfying encounters. It changed me forever. But these are temporary states, you know, there are some beings, God bless them, who can enter into those states and hold them forever, you know, and the great spiritual masters all honor to them. But when you work with psychedelics, 
you only get temporary access to this intimacy and then you have to come back and, and integrate it and digest it. But basically I, I was taken over the years so deep into the divine so many times that it, it just became too much of a heartache to come back into time-space existence. Um, and I knew that I had to stop this work and I had to spend the rest of my life digesting the blessings that I had already been given and to draw them more deeply into my heart and mind. I couldn't keep going back into it. And so I made a deal with the universe. Uh, and the deal was that, that she would not draw me this deeply back into her again until I could stay with her forever. And that was marked the end of my journey. So I've spent the rest of my life continuing to reflect on these things, to ponder them, to understand them, because I'm a, you know, a philosopher, I want to understand things, and I want to share them. And, and I hope the story can be useful to people, some people who do, who are themselves psychedelic journeyers, and so maybe there's some lessons that can be helpful to them. But I hope that most people who read the book will not be psychedelic journeyers, but the journey can still be helpful to them because it will show them something that will resonate with their own deepest intuitions. It'll show them a cosmology. There's a picture of our universe. And if it's true, I think it's true, it will resonate with that understanding that we carry deep in our hearts and in our souls. And therefore it will support them as they go about their own life following their own destiny into their own spiritual fruition. That's my hope. Well, I just have to say, Chris, Professor Bash, I think you're, I love you. I think you're amazing. Um, what <laughs> profound, I mean, I've read your book, but speaking with you, it's just incredible. On a final note, is there any question that I've missed and there's something you'd like to talk to the Passion Harvest audience about? I, I would advise people not to do what I did. I chose to work with very high doses of LSD. I pushed my system very hard. It was more taxing than I thought it was going to be in the beginning. And along the way, I realized that there's no reason to push yourself this hard. So what I would advise today for those who do want to work with psychedelics in a spiritual manner, to work with lower doses, to work with gentler psychedelics, and to not push themselves as hard. And I lay this all out in the book, the reasons for this and whatnot. So my advice would be maybe learn from my mistakes as well as from my successes and don't do what I did. Because if you push as hard as I did, uh, it really does come to, it takes all of your energy and all of your life to navigate the journey that you've done. It's like, you know, if you climb a mountain, it, it, it takes up years and years of your life. This took years and years of my life. And uh, uh, I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world, but I know that there are certain costs that come with that. And I would encourage people not to choose that particular route. Other than that, I guess I would offer, I would just leave with a, uh, a witness to the profound wisdom that is embedded in our bodies and in our hearts and our minds, a wisdom that's embedded in the very deep evolving structure of the universe. 
and the, the stars that mesmerize us with the pictures from the Hubble of the galaxies and the, and the supernovas and the, and the nebula, that the way those, the feelings that those pictures stir in us and awaken in us, those feelings are true. Uh, and the, our lives do participate intimately, deeply in that wisdom. Right here, right now, every day, we are embedded in that wisdom. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yay, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Bash, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. I've just loved talking to you, and I'm so honored to speak with you. And what a wonderful, powerful message you're sharing with the world. So thank you so much. Thank you, Louisa. It's been a wonderful conversation with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye-bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.